Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At ESB Networks, we keep the nation humming by connecting us all to Ireland's power network. The network is always live and dangerous, so please stay safe and stay clear of electricity wires. If you see a fallen wire, do not approach it. Report it on 1-800-372-999. For more information, visit esbnetworks.ie. An absolute belter of a guest this week, uh, Northern Ireland manager, Michael O'Neill. Uh, Michael, I know you think this is an interview, but I've actually been sent <laughs> for Alan McRae for one last war cry. <laughs> Come on, big man, fancy it. <laughs> oh, no. That ship sailed, I think, isn't it? <laughs> right, on to yourself, Michael. A bit about your career. Uh, grew up playing football in Northern Ireland. What kind of upbringing was that football-wise? It's good upbringing. You know, I, I played... Uh, from very young age, through school systems and through international age groups and stuff. And I played for uh, an Irish league club called Corian, which is where I started. Um, I didn't go down the traditional route of football where you, you know, an apprenticeship and, and that type of thing. I actually used to go to Man City as a, as a schoolboy with, with Neil Lennon right. and Jerry Taggart and Michael Hughes. We would travel across on the boat and uh, spend some time at Man City. But in the end, up, I stayed and, and stayed in school and then... Uh, down the line I was transferred so uh, my, my background was really in Irish league football and then I came across to English football when I was 18. Who would your heroes have been back in the day? Was it George Best? No, George was really before my time to Sorry, be I fair. Thought you were older nah, then. definitely not before <laughs> my time but heroes, God. Well I was a huge Liverpool fan so Kenny Dalglish was my absolute idol so he was mm -hmm. and I was fortunate enough to grow up in an era when you know, that great Liverpool team of, you know, the 70s and the 80s, brilliant, you know, um, won everything, European Cups. So, Douglas was very much my idol. So, um, any time at Anfield, I've had the pleasure to meet him and it's been a, a big highlight for me still. Brilliant. Obviously, you mentioned Corrine there. See, being at a smaller club, was there a freedom for you to just go and play? I think you go in at a very young age. I, you know, I think that, you know, we're trying to develop pathways for players. Now, when I played, there wasn't, you know, a, a pathway. You just... You know, I, I played with men since about the age of 15, 16. I played in the first team. You know, I think I played in Europe in a European game when I was 16 for Korean. 
So that wasn't, you know, designed. That was just what happened. And I think, it, you know, it, it equips you better sometimes than this perfect pathway that we're always trying to create for players. And, you know, then we get disappointed with it and then we start to look at the, you know, percentage rates of players that aren't coming through. So um, I just think it was, a, you know, as a young player, you know, I had pace and I was a wide player sometimes. I played through the middle. You just played off your instinct a lot. There wasn't a lot of coaching at that point in time. And it probably benefited me, to be honest. Obviously, being, making your debut at 15, were you, were you hotly tipped in, in Northern Ireland is the next big thing? Yeah, I had a lot. You know, more so probably about two years later when I came through and I was... Um, I actually played here for Corian against Dundee United in the uh, UEFA Cup game and it was, a, it was um, the United team that had just been beaten the previous season in the UEFA Cup final so, um, and I played very well that night and there was a lot of interest after me. Jim McLean actually tried to sign me after the game as well but I opted for Newcastle. So there was a lot of interest and there was a bit of expectation but the game then didn't have the, the, the media outlets that it has now. You know, I wasn't, wouldn't be interviewed by people like you at this stage of, <laughs> at that stage of my career. Which is definitely yeah, a good thing. It's another highlight. See, <laughs> <laughs> so being 15 though, was there a, were you given leeway by the older players and managers or were they just as tough? No, they were tough. They were tough. You know, I mean, the environment for a young player was tough. It was tough in Northern Ireland. Very little protection as well. You had to learn to, you know, avoid tackles or, and, and stay out of that because you didn't have the physique to, to deal with it. Um, and then when I came into football, you know, and you know, we were talking about it earlier, um, you know, how, how coaching and how the mentality of coaches was then as opposed to how it is now and how you have to be with players. So, no, it was, it was a tough environment, but it was great days. You know, I always look back at, you know, where I started at Newcastle and then, you know, to Dundee United and the Hibs and, you know, the people that I played under. And, you know, there was tough times in, in, in that period of my career. But overall, you know, I look back and, you know, I think it shaped me as a player and certainly it shaped me as a manager. Uh, you mentioned that you went to Newcastle in 1987. Mm -hmm. Willie McFold. Yeah, Willie McFold was the Was the fact that he was Irish as well, did that have a part to play in it? I did a little bit, you know, I, I, uh, I remember I, I came over with the manager from Korean and we went to Tannadice and met with Jim McLean and he actually offered me the dreaded four-year contract with a four-year <laughs> option and, and, and I kind of agreed that I was going to go and then we decided, we, we knew we were going to meet Newcastle, Dundee United didn't know that we were going to meet Newcastle so we said, look, we've got 48 hours and then I went and met Newcastle and I just had a, a better feeling that this was the right thing so... Um, you know, I think my dad felt the wrath of Jim McLean when he phoned up and told him that I was going to Newcastle instead. Um, but it just seemed like the right thing. It was a massive club. It was struggling a little bit in, in, in what was the old first division, which today's Premier League. But you could see the potential in the club. And, and uh, as I say, you know, I went there and I had a great first season as well. How daunting was it moving over from Northern Ireland to a big city like Newcastle? Very daunting because... I was at school still, I wasn't even out, like in a, you know, I wasn't like I was a professional player, I was a part-time player and, and I was still at school, I was studying for my A-levels at the time and then suddenly, you know, I'm in a dressing room with Paul Gascoigne, Darren Jackson was a young player there at the time, Glenn Roder, we had a Brazilian, Mirandinha, so you learn to grow up quick and I, I came from a town, uh, Ballymena, actually a town that Brendan Rogers lives quite close to, grew up quite close to Ballymena as well. And uh, suddenly you're in a, in a big city in England like Newcastle. So, but again, you know, that's all part of it. You know, it's, it's part of becoming a footballer is how you adapt to life and when you move away from home and you have to deal with a lot of things. But you know, as I say, it was, uh, it was tough at times, but you know, when I look back, my memories are, are more good than bad. So you mentioned all the young players that you went and joined there. How, would you just go together in Newcastle, the nightlife? Oh, we had a good time, I and at the time I was 18, so 
to say I would have been a little bit naive would have been an understatement, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, so yeah, we used to go to the big market with Gaza and that after games. Had oh, been quiet. And, eh? Yeah, so we had, we, had, we had some good nights. But again, you know, the culture of football was different then. It was different. You know, the, the social aspect of it was different as well. And uh, there was nothing better than you know playing for Newcastle, winning. And having that feeling of you know having the night out and everything after, and uh, as I say, it was a great club to play for. I always ask everyone this: Do you remember your debut for Newcastle? I do indeed. Yeah, two-one uh, beat Charlton. Um, didn't have the good, best game, to be fair. I always remember um, Gaza. Gaza was playing. Gaza used to always want to play off the front player, like play little balls around the corner and that. At that time, I was always like wanting to run in behind. So he'd be playing around balls around the corner, I'd run in behind, and then the centre half would just step in and take the ball. And he was just going off his head. The whole 90 minutes, he was just going off his head with me. And uh, I remember he came in on the Monday morning and he apologised to me. He says, listen, I was out of order. I shouldn't have spoke to you like that. And it was a big thing for me because he was a big player. You know, he was up, he was 20 at the time. A lot of pressure on him as well. And, uh, you know, it, it was the start of me. You know, it was about three weeks after I had arrived. I think I made my debut. And uh, it, was, it, was a tough, it was a tough curve to, to learn. You know, the St. James's, you know, the Gallagher's a tough audience to play in front of. Um, but I remember it well. And I remember, you know, those early days and having to adapt to players of that level. And, and you know, you're always seeking approval as a player. You always want it. When you come into the team, you want approval from the older players. And, you know, so it was good of him to come to me on the Monday and apologise for how he'd been with me and then give me that confidence boost to go on and, and, and obviously establish myself in the first team. Uh -huh. Any particular wind-ups you remember for Gaza? Because too many to remember. Like, I always remember when we were on away trips, they used to used to knock on my door and then I'd come out in the corridor and there'd be no one there and then I'd come again and they'd knock the door again and go out again and then about four of them would pile up and they'd just come in and press me up against the wall and put the bed up on top of me and wreck <laughs> my room and stuff like that there. So as a young boy, you were the brunt of many, many, uh, many, I suppose, tricks and whatever. But as I say, it's all part of the grown-up process. You said obviously at first you were a bit nervous and no, no, no moving in the right places for the ball. How long did it take you to, to finally feel, yeah, I'm one of the, one of the players here now? I think you start to feel it after, like possibly, you know, you get to that point where you've played maybe 20, 25 games. You never can fully settle on it because the game's constantly changing. New players are coming in, you're adapting. You know, at Newcastle, we, in my first season, you know, we finished seventh, which was the highest Newcastle had finished for a long time. You know, I'd finished, I think, 13 goals. I scored as the top goal scorer. And then the next season, by October, Willie McFall was sacked. There's a new manager comes in, new players start to come. Gaza had left to go to Tottenham. There's so many things that are, you know, you, uh, uh, it's one thing about football. It's so transient, it's so, it moves so quickly that you, you can't, the one thing you can't do is just feel that. But I always, you know, that you, you've made it. I always felt that, like, I got to that point, I was an international player, that, you know, I, I, I'd sort of established myself. But again, you know, I had to re... Every time I moved club, I always felt that I had to redo that again. When you were on fire at Newcastle, you mentioned you were top scorer there. Was there other clubs that were interested in you then? Yeah, there was interest at the time, because Newcastle were a selling club, you know, and there'd been a bit of talk at the time. You know, at the time, Liverpool were the big club, and, like, um, the, the, the champions, obviously, the other big clubs were really like Manchester United. Everyone thought Gascoigne was going to go to Manchester United. It was a little bit of a surprise when he went to Tottenham. The game he played, we played Tottenham, and I always remember Terry Venables was just back from Barcelona, took the Tottenham job. He was all suntan in the dugout, and uh, Gaza scored two that day. It was a January day. Gaza, we beat Tottenham 2 0. 
was brilliant that day, and I think Venables made his mind up that day to go and you know to sign him. So there was interest, but the second season was difficult for me. I had injuries. Newcastle got relegated, and you know it, the, the interest sort of waned a little bit as well. And um, you know at that point, I ended up coming to Scotland, and uh, you know I don't regret that. It was a, at the time I felt it was the right move for my career, um, but it showed me. You know I think very quickly within the space of possibly two, two and a half years within the game, I'd seen both sides of the game very quickly. I was going to say, how hard is that for a young kid moving away from home? Want your first year so high and then the next year so low? It's very difficult, very difficult, because the change of manager was difficult at Newcastle. Jim Smith was an older manager. He didn't really have any interest in developing players. Like He brought Mark McGee down at the time from Celtic to play. He brought Mickey Quinn in to play. Um, he, he didn't really want to be like, right, I'm going to develop this 18, 19-year-old Northern Ireland boy. And yeah, I did feel a little bit on the periphery of it, a little bit on the outside, whereas under Willie McFall, I had felt an integral part of things. And, you, you know, that, that is the nature of football, unfortunately. And, and it does test you. The mental side of the game tests you a lot. And, you know, at the end of just over two seasons at Newcastle, then obviously I came north to Dundee United. And what, what appealed to you about Dundee United? Obviously, it wasn't me, Jim, because he went off his nut at your dad. Yeah, look, I think... The one thing that appealed to me about Dundee United was, you know, I'd heard so much about Dundee United that the players were so well coached. And I felt that I needed to be coached, to be honest. I felt that, you know, if I was going to develop as a player, I needed to benefit from that. I needed to be in that environment. The environment I was in at Newcastle didn't provide that for me. And I, I just had that feeling, I don't know, I, I think it was an instinctive thing or an instinctive decision that I made that I would come to Dundee United, you know, I'd become a better player. And then, you know, I'd, I'd do well and then I'd be sold back to England or whatever. But as it happened, it didn't, it didn't really work like that. You know, I, ended up, I spent four seasons at Dundee United and then I moved to Hibs and then eventually I went back to England after that. Did we, Jim, say that when he signed you, I'll make you a better player? Yeah, he, was, he always had that. It was one of his things that he, he was very good in that situation, you know, and he had the reputation to be able to back that up. You know, he also had the re he, he played young players. You know, like when I was there, I mean, I remember walking in and, and signing at Dundee United and seeing, like, Duncan Ferguson at the time was working with the groundsman. Andy McLaren was painting the gym for things they'd oh, done. Cri story, cr yeah. Crimes, <laughs> crimes, crimes against Jim McLean. And uh, they had, uh, but the, the talent that was at that club was, was extremely high and he played them. You know, there wasn't, you know, uh, and I suppose that, that was another factor in, in my decision as well. And, you know, United were a good side. They, they'd, you know, competed at the top end of the, you know, the, the Scottish Premier League. They were in cup finals. They would have been the UEFA Cup final. Um, but as I say, it was a tough environment there as well. How big a characters were they? Andy McLaren, Duncan Ferris, and Billy McKinley was there at the time as well. Yeah, we, well, they were all great lads. And it's funny that um, I think there's always a common bond between all those lads that were United at the time because... One thing about McLean, he treated us all badly. <laughs> so the fact that he treated us all badly, we have that common sort of bond, I think. And um, I think they were young lads, so I saw them, first of all, when they weren't in the team. And then I saw them come through, you know, the likes of Big Dunk come in and eventually go to Rangers for four million. You know, Andy McLaren come in, John O'Neill. Billy was in the team already established and Billy had, you know, he was a Scotland under 21 international and then he made it through into the full squad. Christian Daly coming in and playing the first team at 16. So it was a, it was a really good environment because it was a very competitive environment. They, they almost created that. You know, they trained you hard and they coached you hard and but they put a lot of, you know, they give you a lot, United. I, I always look at, you know, when I go back, that's 1990. I remember going in, you know, we would have had, you know, guidance on nutrition. 
we would have had strength and conditioning coaches, we had sprint coaches. We'd, you didn't have that in Newcastle. Time, was he, Aye, we, we didn't have any of that. And next thing we had psychologists and we'd every, we, there was a lot of stuff done at Dundee United that was way ahead of its time, to be honest, away from, and, and it was the right environment possibly to do it in because there were so many young players and it was the right time to get players at that age and expose them to that. The problem was that how Jim managed us at times meant that possibly we didn't do as well as what we could have done. You talked about the younger guys, but I, want, I just want to know how good were guys like Neri, Hegarty and Sturrock? They were brilliant. Like Paul Luggy had just finished playing, but he was a brilliant coach. Sturrock was a brilliant coach, great working with attacking players. Big size, Stevie Neri was just the mo most laid-back man in the world. He looked like he could play till he was 50, you know, he never, uh, positionally brilliant. Uh, Paul Hegarty was just coming possibly at the end and he, 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 I think he left the St. Johnson first of all. Uh, but again, great guys, great, and who had spent, who'd spent their whole career at Tannadice, you know, and had, uh, so you were, you were walking into a dressing room that was, it was, it was quite a different combination. You had all those guys, you know, your Jim McNally's, your Dave Bowman's, who'd been in United a, a long time, that had success, they're part of a successful team. And then you had this other, you know, new, they used to call themselves the new breed of players. <laughs> I still love that. And, I, and then you had the likes of myself who'd been transferred into the club. I, I was kind of neither. Darren Jackson was a little bit the same. Uh, but it, 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 was, uh, it was good. They, they were very much like the example to follow. But the thing was that players, the, new, the younger players who came in, they didn't envisage that they were going to spend their whole career at Dundee United. They wanted to experience other things and often that's when the problems happened. How quickly did you realise that Jim McLean was an angry, angry man? Uh, well, I kind of knew from uh, obviously the past dealings when I said I didn't sign the first time and, and obviously what I'd been told. It's like anything, I never envisaged it would be as bad as it, as it actually was, but I think it was the second game we played in Dundee in the Derby, and we were 2-0 up at half-time, and I'd scored and played well, and I thought, good, I'd scored in my debut as well, so I thought, this is going well. And we actually lost the game 4-3, Keith Wright scored a hat-trick, and he came in after the game and just tore strips off me. And I was like, it was only my set. I'd only been at the club four days, I'd moved, and uh, so it was pretty, I was pretty like, is this how it's going to be, you know? And the lads said, look, look, don't worry about it. That's how it'll be every week. And uh, it just was. It, that was Jim's way of, you know, I suppose, his frustrations of his dealing with it. And it was a shame in a way because I think that the one thing possibly missing from Jim McLean, well, it was missing, was the ability, that man management side of things because he had so much else to offer. His knowledge of the game was brilliant. You, you don't go and... You know, Jock Steen doesn't ask you to be his assistant at the national team level unless you've got something to offer. And Jim McLean had his knowledge of the game was, was fabulous. Unfortunately, how he tried to pass that knowledge on to players at times was was uh, was difficult. Would older guys like Neri in that city, Alison, forget forget that? Yeah, they would. Yeah, they'd all been through it. They'd all been through it, you know, and, and, and they'd all had it at different times. As they got older, it got less and less. New players come into the team, new players then tended to be the brunt of it. But you pretty much come in at half time thinking, Hopefully he'll start in someone else before me because by the end of the half time, there might not be enough time for him to get round, you know. Or you tried to make sure you didn't sit beside someone that was going to get it. You know, I used to always think, it used to be particularly hard sometimes on Paddy Connolly. So I always used to come in and think, I'll sit away from Paddy because he <laughs> might get it. But that was the way, you know. And in those days as well, you know, there was only two subs, there was only 13 people in the right. dressing room actually. So, um, yeah, it, it, some, some of the, the half time uh, scenes could be fairly interesting. Would anyone ever give a, a bit back? One or two, like, there was always one or two, and, and then that was the one thing that came in, like, Duncan, when Duncan Ferguson came in, and then he came into the team, 
he almost became kind of untouchable because he certainly had a va he had this value. He had like ten years left on his contract, but he had a value of <laughs> on you a know, five and yeah, and and yeah, it's all, yeah, and but he had, I think he knew, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll get, he doesn't have the same hold. And I think that was the start at the end, nearly, uh, for, for, for Jim, because I, I played in Jim McLean's last game before he resigned. And, uh, you know, that was Duncan Ferguson's last season as well. And I think he saw that this generation of players aren't going to be managed the same way that I managed the previous generation of players. And uh, so, yeah, there's one or two that spoke back. I remember we had, a, we had an Argentinian there, Victor Ferreira. And Victor used to speak, Victor spoke back in like Argentinian or Spanish, like, and it was it was uh, quite funny at times. But um, yeah, like yeah, the, the thing was, that if you spoke back, invariably you found yourself out of the team for about six weeks or six months on some some occasions. So that was where always you were slightly wary about what you would say. It's funny you said that because we interviewed Andy McLaren, and he mm. said that Duncan Ferguson was the end for Jim McLean. Mm. He couldn't handle. Mm -hmm. What was it? Just the confidence that Big Dunk had. Uh, I, I, there was a bit of that, there was certainly the confidence in that, but I think that Dunk had got to a point where he just didn't care. He, he sort of went, look, I'm not going to be here for 11 years. Mm -hmm. You know, your, my contract might say that you can hold me at that time. And I think he just thought, like, you know, the, 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 any of the control that Jim McLean had over him had, had gone very quickly mm -hmm. because Fergie had come, made an immediate impact into the team. You know, he, he was this 20-year-old 20, 20 kid, six foot four. He was what every team in Britain was looking for, you know. Um, Rangers, four... When you have a... N none of us had that value. We had values at the time. I remember Ray McKinnon went to Nottingham Forest for three quarters of a million, which was a lot. Jim was brilliant at cashing in at the right time. He sold Kevin Gallagher for 900 grand, which was just, you know, at the time, a million pounds, a lot of players. But Dunk, Dunk's value was, like, way and above that. So once you had that valuation... Then I suppose the the balance of power maybe went went uh, rested more with Fergie than it did with Jim McLean. Big Dunk loves his pigeons. Um, did he not try to put a pigeon hut in your house? He did try, yeah. The young, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 young the young lads at Dundee United. They used to they were all in digs, so they weren't. They, they, it was pretty um, basic conditions that they lived in. I had a house, and my, I was quite fortunate because when I came to Dundee United. I think they paid just 350 grand for me at the time, which was a club record. So my contract was a bit different. I was a financially better off than the other young players. So I was able to buy a house and stuff. So they used to come down to the house and Big Fergie had, I think he had a, a plot out the back where he could, a, a ducat, I'd never heard of what a ducat was. I didn't know what that was. So he explained to me what a ducat was and could he put a pigeon hut there, which I refused. And then he asked me, could I keep a greyhound at one point as well? So again, which I refused. So yeah, but it was we had good times actually. And you know, I haven't seen him for a long while, but it's good to see him still in the game actually. It's good to see him, you know, back in the coaching side of Everton. Just to ask you about on Jim McLean, could you never go to him after it and say, listen, I think you've been a bit harsh on me. Can we have a wee chat about it? Would, would that just not exist back then? There was times you had that. There was times where sometimes you would do something that was like quite compassionate and you would think, you know, you'd start to think differently or when he praised you, it meant so much. But invariably then, it would turn very quickly, you know, it would turn very quickly. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, I always felt that Jim McLean... That was one of, he had so much to give a player, he had so much brilliant information to give you as a player, but because of how it was delivered to you, you never received it. You know, you never took it in and received it as you should have done because there were some real moments of genius in there. There were some really, like he could say the smallest thing to you about your game and you go away and think, 
that's, that's going to make me, that's 100% right, that's going to make me better. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, if that one thing or that piece of information, you know, is yelled into your face from, you know, five centimetres away from your face, you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, take it and process it. And that, that was the, the, I think, the, the difficulty of it. But, you know, it was funny, when I left United, I don't think I had a conversation with Jim McLean or I haven't had a conversation since that point in time. See, when he was doing that stuff, did you think he was doing that because he thought it would make you a better player, or was it just him getting his anger in it? It was more, no, it was just, it was just the frustration in the game. Mm -hmm. he, 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 the frustration in the game. For, he, he was much better. When, when I went to United, he, he was banned from the touchline, so he was in the glass box. You know, at Tannadice, the glass <laughs> box. So he was in, and you could see him go mad in the box when you were playing. <laughs> so you were always hoping you were on the other side of the pitch. But then when the, when the band finished, I always remembered, the band finished, he, he used to still sit in the box, but there was like a fire escape out the side of the box, so then he could get out and onto the sideline, and you'd just see him get up, and you'd know, oh, he's coming out, and uh, he's coming out the skip at the fire escape, <laughs> and, and then he would just berate you from the side of the touchdown. It was just his way. I just think he got so engrossed in the game, and he was so, like, I think you had a man that would 24 seven, his mind was just football, 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 all the time. And uh, as I say, it was four years. And I, I think possibly when I look at all the managers I played under, all of the environments I was in at different clubs that I played at, you know, I always think probably I took more from Tannadice in terms of what I've taken to be a manager than maybe any of the other clubs I was at. I was going to say that as a player, do you, is there times that you look back and when you were a player you think he's out of order there, but now you're a manager, you can see where he was coming from? Yeah, I think, I think all players do. I think all players change when they go and do their coaching badges mm -hmm. and they go, I should have been more receptive as a player. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the biggest thing, you know. And, and when I look back as a player, I, I, you know, I think I should have been more receptive at times. I didn't have all the answers. I didn't have very many of the answers, <laughs> if the truth be told. So that, that, that's where I think possibly, you know, getting young players into coaching at a young age is, is not a bad thing, you know what I mean? Because they see how difficult it is and, and, and you know, the benefit of, of, of coaching as well. But, like, um, I, I think that, you know, that, that's probably where I looked at how... I looked at all the different managers that I played and I, and I took good and bad from them all. You know, things that they were exceptionally good at. You know, I looked at you know, Gordon Strachan when I went to Coventry. His enthusiasm on the training pitch was brilliant, infectious. She loved it. Even when you were at the team at Coventry, you went in every day and felt you were learning. Alec Miller, extremely well organised. You know, again, had a bit of Jim McLean about him, but brilliant, brilliant on the opposition. You know, Jim McLean, brilliant tactically. You know, very hard on you. High standards, high standards. And I think you take bits from all of them. And the best managers I played under, without any doubt, were the Scottish managers. He said four years at United. Was that a bit of relief to get out at the end? It wasn't the end, you know, I had a difficult last year. I remember the, the la I, initially when I went to United, I signed a three-year contract. And uh, in, the first, in my last year, I, I started the season and scored, I think I scored five goals in six games. And then Jim McLean never played me the rest of the season. He never played me a single game, a single minute, because uh, my contract, he wanted me to sign a contract. And I would sort of said, look, I'm going back to England and uh, I want to go back to England. And then he basically put me out of the game, to be honest, for that period of time. And then it was different then. There was no Bosman. You know, people don't really, there was no Bosman. So United held my registration. I went to Everton on trial. I went to Middlesbrough. Couldn't agree a deal. And English clubs didn't like going to the tribunal system with Scottish teams at the time either. So I actually, I actually ironically went back to Dundee United, 
signed a contract from October to the end of the season and he played me every game. It was no different from the year before. Yeah. My contractual situation was no different, but he played me basically every game. And then he, he retired and Ivan Golak came in and that was kind of my opportunity, I thought, to get away. And, and Hibs came in and bought me in a tribunal for I think about 250 or something like that. So no brainer to go to Hibs? Ideally, if I've been honest, at the time my preference was to try to go back to England. Yeah. It was the start, you know, the Premier League had just started actually and, and it was, you know, you could see things, you know, the game in England where it was, where it was developing. Um, but Hibs was great. I loved, I loved Hibs as a club. Alec was a really good manager. Listen, we had a bit of a love-hate relationship at times, but he was a very, very good manager. And uh, you know, Hibs is a really good club to play for. And, you know, I live in Edinburgh now, you know, I, I, I regard it as my home city. And, uh, you know, Hibs is a club that, you know, when I look back, it was three very happy years I had there. Uh, how much did you enjoy your time there? Brilliant. It was, you know, as I say, we had a good team. And it, it wasn't a young team, but we had, like, we had a good, you know, I played off the left. We signed Kevin McAllister, played off the right. Keith Wright and Darren Jackson played up front. Jim Leighton in goal. You know, Alec was always criticised for being a little bit negative, but I never found him that way at all, you know. He was structured, but not negative. And, uh, you know, we, we, I always, it makes me laugh now a little bit where everyone, the, the, the media and managers and coaches are talking about oh, the top six, that's been the top six. The three years I was at Hibs, we finished third, fourth and fifth. And, like, Alec Miller was maligned for a lot of that, you know. So um, we were beaten in the cup final by Rangers. So it was, it was a good time, you know, I remember one, like one season, we think it was my second season, Rangers won the league, Motherwell pipped us to second, we were third and Celtic were fourth. So that, you know, th th those are situations that you wouldn't even envisage happening in Scottish yeah. football now. But it was a good, Hibs is a good place to play, Easter Road's a good place to play and the Hibs fans are great. You mentioned Dan Jackson, I think that was Newcastle United, Dan Hibs, how, how good a pal is he with you? And we have, our careers are intertwined, to be honest. Normally, I followed him about a year later. Uh, that's kind of the way it happened. Is that a good or a bad thing? Well, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. He had no other mates, maybe, in the dressing room. And if, but, uh, yeah, it was good. Darren, Darren, like anyone that's been in the dressing room, and Darren knows he's a good lad, he's lively, he's bubbly. Um, a good player as well, a really good player, great finisher. Um, but we had, again, he'd been through that, you know, he had seen me come... His pathway wasn't that different to mine because he'd gone from Meadowbank at the time to Newcastle, which was a bit similar to me going from Corian yeah. to Newcastle. So he was good for me when I went to Newcastle. He looked out for me a bit. You know, he, he was different. He was, like, he was married at 20 and, did, you know, his, his lifestyle and things were different. But he was, uh, he was a, very, uh, a very good player. His enthusiasm for the game is still there. I see him jumping about in the touchline, so I'm looking forward to seeing him back in the technical area now at St Mirren and causing havoc. So how did Coventry come about then, me, Gordon Strachan? Was it him that wanted to sign you? Yeah, it was really. You know, Gordon had... I knew there was interest. There was interest. At, it was a, a funny time, that, because it was the first year of Bosman, but you weren't a Bosman in Scotland to go to England. You were only a Bosman to go to, uh, country to country. yeah, to France or yeah. somewhere like that. And John Collins had actually gone to Monaco from Celtic. And, and you know, people were telling me, oh, Celtic will come in. But Celtic would have had to buy me. Uh, and then I actually spoke to Sturm Graz in Austria and I was going to go there. And Hibs were holding out and Hibs were, you know, and then eventually Gordon came in and, you know, the, I think they bought me for four or 500 grand. But Ron Atkinson was the manager. And then Gordon was the assistant manager with the, basically that Gordon would take over in 12 to 18 months. It happened after about three months, to be honest. So it was really good. To go to the Premier League was brilliant. Um, but unfortunately for me, it was just, 
it was a bit of a disaster for me. I, I, you know, I, I started in the team and then I was out of the team and then I had an injury. And basically for when I look back at Coventry, you know, I was two years at Coventry and for a period I, was, I spent six months away on loan and for the other 18 months, about 12 of those I was injured. I had three, three groin surgeries and a shoulder surgery as well. So it was disappointing. It's the one period of my career where I look back and think it was a real disappointment because it was my chance to go back, to be in the Premier League. You know, could I play at that level? Could I establish myself at that level? And, and I always feel that I possibly didn't get the chance. And, you know, as I say, you know, you just have to deal with that and move on. And, but I enjoyed, I really enjoyed working under Gordon Strachan. I thought he was a brilliant coach and infectious, you know, even at the time I was 27, you know, I, I, I always felt that he, he was making me a better player. Guys with Hodon have told some great stories about his wit. Did you, uh, did you see that at any time? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, could, he could cut you in two in the training pitch. The problem we had with Gordon was he was still the best player at the club. That was, you know, and he actually played for a period um, and he made such a difference to the team. You know, he used to play in reserve games and sometimes he'd play. You'd never work as hard in your life because Strat could still work. He still got up and down the pitch. He, his standards were so high. You tried to avoid being on his team in, in training because, like, if he got beat, you know, you hear it getting beat and then you'd be running and stuff. He just. What you did? What you did? What you did that for? Totally, totally. <laughs> and then he, he, he and he had players that he would just never pick. He, he used to go on. I'm not picking him. Play with good. He would pick his team, the players <laughs> he wanted. But it was, it was very, very infectious. I remember once we said. The young, young boy kept giving the ball, an Irish boy actually, kept giving the ball in training. He just says, listen, you need to go in. He says, we can't, you're ruining the training. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to send him in, Barry Quinn, always remember it. But Gordon, Gordon was really, really good to work, you know. And, and again, when I worked with Gordon, I think he would have been, let's say he was 39, 40 and still playing. There's no, when you're a player, when the manager can come in and do the demo, and it's better than anyone else. The only player, technically, possibly, who, who was Gary McAllister. Yeah. You know, he could come in and do it, yeah. and Strat could come in and do it, and the rest of us were like, mm, we're maybe not going to be able to do that. <laughs> so, How good was McAllister as a player? Uh, very good, very good. It was a surprise move for Gary. I, I always felt, he, he signed just after me, because he came from Leeds. They'd just won the league a few, a few years previous. Um, so I, I always felt like, he, you know, he was Scotland captain, that it, it was a surprise... Uh, it was after just Euro 96 actually that he came and uh, but you know I think what Gary did at the tail end of his career outlined how good a player he was you know, uh, yeah, that, what he did at Liverpool from the ages of sort of you know 32, 33 to, to 36, 37 was phenomenal um, and Coventry he was always playing a struggling team you know, we, 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 we always tend to be you know, fighting for our lives a little bit at Coventry and that was you know, the nature of the Premier League and uh, so possibly you know, we didn't see the best of him at Coventry but certainly you know, he showed that at Liverpool. Is that tough for an attacking player like yourself when you're fighting mm -hmm. relegation all the time? Very difficult. It was one of the things as well that possibly you know, Gordon used to say to me at times look, he says you know, I need to put running power in the team and we had players at the club like people like you know, Noel Whelan that came up here like yeah, Paul Telford they were brilliant they, you know, they could cover huge distances in the game they were very good players as well and that was you know when you're at the bottom of the league you had to you had to be like that you needed that in your team and you know I, I suffered a little bit because of that Owen Jess suffered you know Ian Jess didn't yeah. play he was there at the time as much either as, as maybe what he, he wanted and, and it, it gave me I think it was the start of the Premier League where the pace and the power 
that we, we, we'll always talk about players now in Scotland going you know, south and how different it is, how, how they have to adapt to the, the pace and the power of the game down there. I think that was the start of it and the, that gap got starting to grow. And, and then the influx of, of the foreign players that come in. I think at the time, you know, at Coventry, we possibly had, you know, eight, nine different nationalities in the dressing room as well. So very, very competitive environment. You think maybe that move abroad to some grass would have maybe suited your style of play better? Uh, it's one thing when I look back, yeah, that I, I wish I'd possibly have done. Uh -huh. It's the one thing I think I would have liked to have gone and, and played abroad, uh, experienced that. You know, you see players, I think possibly playing abroad, you know, would have suited me. I always looked at, you know, how you know, John Collins did fantastically well at Monaco. And I think, you know, he, he, and he, when he came back to the Premier League, it was first with Everton and then with Fulham, you know, I'm sure he found it difficult to adapt because I'm sure, like, Monaco and that style of football was more suitable to his kind of game as well. Uh -huh. OK, mate, on to the managerial career. Mm -hmm. The most obscure first manager's job ever, Breaking City. Breaking City, How yeah. did that come about? Bizarre situation, really. I, I, I had gone, I'd walked, I'd not walked away, I'd stopped playing and I'd done my coaching badges, uh, but I'd done nothing with them. I, I actually was working in financial services and I, I was working at uh, Ernst & Young in, in Edinburgh. And um, I, I, I just remember, I was one Saturday I was shopping with my wife and I just went, I'm not meant to be shopping on a Saturday. Like, I, I just something hit me and I went, she said, well, you better go and do something about it. So I phoned Mixu Patalainen, who was the Cowden Beath manager. I said, do you, he had no assistant. Mixu didn't have an assistant. I said, do you need help? And we'd done known Mixu from United. He says, you come in? Yeah, I can't pay you. And I said, no, I just, I want to come in and start. So I went to Cowden Beath and uh, started working with Mixu. And um, then my mate Grant Johnson was at Dundee, uh, Breakin at the time, who'd been at uh, Thing at, uh, Dundee United with me and it, uh, it was Dick Campbell had left breaking I think Dick had left and then Ian Campbell had left and it was him he said why don't you go for the job and I was like no and he says go on I'll, I'll mention it. I'll throw your name in at the directors and they, they indicated that they didn't like to interview me and I went and interviewed and then they gave me the job so suddenly I was managing a club 90 miles from where I lived <laughs> trying to do a full-time job and um, I think my, my my daughter at the time was two two or three at the time so I took on a lot at that time, but it wasn't, it wasn't a plan. It was just something instinctive. And uh, I love breaking. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's a great club. You can take that job, but you need to cut that hedge. You need to cut the hedge <laughs> and you need to deal well. But it was a brilliant, you know, I look at young managers now, and you can't be choosy. You know, if you're offered a manager job, you, you, you know, if you want to be a manager and you're offered a manager job, you have to take it. But I was fortunate that I went to a club where there was really good people that were going to give me a chance to be a manager. And they're still good people. You look at the fact, you know, Brie can go to the championship. Okay, they don't manage to win the game, but they haven't sacked the manager. They realise where they are as a club. My job was to try and, you know, they'd, they were in a similar situation. They'd been relegated from the championship. I was, I was basically trying to restructure and get the team younger and make it competitive. And it is the best grounding, I think, for any, I would say to any young manager, you know, everyone wants to start as high as they can. But if you don't get that opportunity, you know, go and get your hands dirty. And, you know, in those two, three seasons at Brecon, Arguably, I learned as much as I've learned. Anywhere. That's what I was going to say, Jane. Working in the lower leagues helped you as a manager. Totally. I mean, working under no resources. How hard was that? To- totally. It's you know, people. You know, you have to sit down. You have to do all the same things. You got to leave players at the team. You know, I had lads coming into me in two hundred quid a week, and I was encouraging them to take fifty pound wage drop. They were like that. So that fifty pound meant a lot to them. I was, mm. but I need it. I needed six fifty pounds off the mall to get myself two new players. Yeah, right, yeah. So, I, like, I had to manage budgets. I had to. How did you even go about finding players? Word of mouth at that, because you don't have recruitment. It was word of mouth. Like, I remember one of the things I did do. I signed Paddy Connolly, who had been playing for the previous two years at Sterling, and Paddy knew every player, and the lo- he knew everyone. So he he was invaluable to me. I brought Gareth Evans as my assistant, who had previously worked at Alloa, so knew a lot of the players. But I didn't know the players, really. I knew that short spell at Cowdenbeath. I, I started to get to know the players, but I didn't know a lot of the players that were playing in, in the, the lower divisions. But quickly you do. And um, it, it, a lot of it's logistics as well. Like we, we, we based the club in Edinburgh. We kind of trained in Edinburgh and we trained in Perth, which meant we could only sign really players from the central area. Uh-huh. We couldn't really sign players from Aberdeen or anywhere like that. So, you know, we, we focused on that. And, uh, you know, it, it was good. You know, when I left, when I left Brecon, you know, we made the playoffs, I think, the, the, the two years I was there. And when I left, um, we, I think we were top or joint top with Race Rovers at the time. One of the challenges we always had, which was a good challenge, there was always one or two full-time teams in the league. Ross County were in it at one time. Race Rovers, Morton. You know, so those were all those are all good challenges, and uh, but it's a, I, I would honestly for for any young manager, and I look at young managers now. I look at people like you know, Paul Hartley, where he started. You, you know, um, other other managers that have gone to that level, like Mixie Battle Line, that started at Cowdenbeath, 
and I went as an assistant. And I think it was six years later we were playing against each other in a World Cup game for Finland and Northern wow. Ireland. Brilliant. So you know that shows you where you where you can go to in a short space of time. You still get some great players in the lower leagues, mate. Believe well, me. So believe. <laughs> <laughs> See when there's, that is your there's first. There's a few. There's a few hard luck stories, isn't <laughs> oh, there? <laughs> believe me. I've told that story hundreds of times. Um, See when you're going into your first job, is it about a style of player? Is it just winning to get about winning. A, another move? Style. I, I genuinely don't believe that you can coach players. First of all. Part-time players don't really want to be coached. Do you want to? No, you, you want, want to, to kick a bit, don't you? You want to come on a Tuesday and a Thursday night. Some of them you're different because you don't have a job. Some of them have <laughs> jobs, right? So they, they they're they're working harder than you. But if you've been working nine to five, you don't want to come and necessarily be coached. There's an element of how you set your training up, which has a coaching aspect to it. But you're not wanting to go. It's not about you as the coach. It's about creating the the right environment for the players, getting them together. We had a really good group at Brecon. They were good lads. They worked hard. We knew what we were good at. We were very hard to beat, particularly at Glebe. Uh, the pitch was tight, good at set pieces. And, you know, if you, set, if you bring those lads together, they enjoy training Tuesday and Thursday. They're ready to play Saturday. I put a really strict wage structure in at Breakin where everyone was on the same appearance money, the same bonus money. So when they were successful, they were turning up and I think, you know, their appearance and their bonus could be worth an extra £150 to them. So they were incentivised, they got the wages. You know, if they walked away on a Saturday and they'd won the game, sometimes they had £300 a week. They're made up. They couldn't wait to get back to train on Tuesday night. That's, that's what you create, really, as opposed to, you know, let's play systems and let's work. And you, you don't have the time and you don't have the facilities to do it. You're working more with the players mentally. How delighted were you when Shamrock Rovers came calling? Well, it was, it was a big decision to make, to be honest. I remember I, I was linked to go take the Dundee job and, and Dundee at the time actually had asked Breakin for permission to speak to me and, and Breakin had turned it down and at that time I was working for a company in Edinburgh a different financial service company and we were going out of business so that was a factor <laughs> that, I, I, yeah no it wasn't down to me <laughs> down to the others in the company and uh, that was a factor I was thinking well I didn't really think I would take the Shamrock Rovers job when I first met them and then I went over to Dublin and I thought, I had a feeling there's something here, you could do something with this. And uh, then, you know, came back and then they came and they offered me, you know, a good, a good contract to go to. First of all, it's full-time football. And I thought, because of my situation with my job, I'm always going to have to make this decision at some point in time. And I thought this was the right time to do it. But I went into, like, it, it was a huge challenge because I went into a league that I had the, the biggest club and the most club with the most history. But budget-wise and where the team was was really not in a good place at all. So the challenge to get to where we got to was, was massive. And, uh, but again, a lot of the principles that I put in place at Brecon, you know, I brought it to Shamrock Rovers as well. Is it harder being a manager at a team with higher expectations? Yeah, it is, but like, uh, that's what you want. You know, I always say that to our players. There's nothing worse. The worst thing you can be as a footballer or as any sportsman is to have no expectation. You know, imagine going out and it, it doesn't... It, it can't be that. Like, and we, we got to a point with Northern Ireland where I felt... We need to change. We need to create expectation here, you know. And and we've done that. And you know, we play friendly games now in Belfast, and they sell out. Beforehand, you would have played a friendly game in Belfast. You couldn't have given the tickets away. So you need to create expectation as well. It's a good thing. It keeps players motivated. It keeps people on their toes. It keeps me motivated. It keeps me constantly wanting to drive the thing forward. So with Shamrock Rovers, the big thing was, could we take this club back to where they they felt they belonged? You know. The, the top club in Ireland and you know, you know, thankfully you know, we managed to do that. And what was that down Because you said it needed a lot of work when you first went in. What clicked to put it in a place? First I had to basically 
I used my financial skills and chopped the budget in very many ways, got rid of all the dead wood very quickly. Had to make quick decisions, you know, I didn't, I thought I'm not gonna carry these players for six months. So basically within about six weeks, I went to the board and I said, look, I need 60,000 to pay these players off. But I was also creating another 200,000 in my budget by doing that. I felt I could get players in Scotland that were cheaper than the players in Ireland at the time. The players in Ireland were expensive because it was off the back of the Celtic Tiger and players in the League of Ireland were earning 2,000 pound a week, 2,000 euros, 1,800, where I was bringing players in from Scotland on like 500 euros a week. You know, I, I, brought, I brought Craig Sivis in from Hearts and he'd been Big injured. Uh -huh. uh -huh. He came in initially on 250 euros a week. And by the end, he was the best centre half in the league. People were going, well, what a player this laddie. You know, we got him fit. Um, we brought Gary Twigg in, who scored 60-odd goals for us in four seasons. We brought uh, Greg Cameron come over on loan from Dundee United. Ross Chisholm come over. For so I, I brought a nice little influx of players, some from north of the border, some from Scotland, and built a cheaper team that was competitive. How, how important is it to be ruthless? With, like you say, you had to get rid of the deadwood. It'd have to be. It's the, most, it's the most important. It's the biggest difference between a coach and a manager. Manager makes decisions. Mm -hmm. A good manager makes decisions. You must make decisions and trust your instinct in the decision. Otherwise, you know, all the other stuff on the pitch is great, all that other stuff, but you have to have a, a, I think, a pathway. This is where I'm going, and these are the decisions I'm going to have to make. And they're not all easy. They're not all easy. I've had to do that at international as well. You know, I had to basically, you know, end David Healy's international career, even though he's a record goal scorer for Northern Ireland. So you have to make those decisions or you, or you, you, you know, you'll die. And that, I think, is the biggest thing I would say as well in terms of management. Get to the point, the sooner you're in a position where you're making decisions, the better you'll get at it. Mm -hmm. If you spend 15 years coaching, you're not overly making decisions, you're just deciding what training you're putting on the pitch. It's different from the decisions you make as a manager are personal between you and the player. It's a different relationship. Did you always have that ruthlessness? Or do you think maybe the financial work brought that out of you? Yeah, I think it possibly did, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't have said, you know, I would have said going into management that that would have been something that I would have been wary of. I'm not sure if I am I strong enough to make these decisions. Will I be able to go into that environment and make those decisions? But once I got in, I just kind of, I think it happens, you have, in the early part of management, you, you get situations that crop up and you have to decide, it's easier to make that decision, but that's really the right decision, but that's a tough decision to make. Mm -hmm. And once you make that decision, you'll know you can make it again. Yeah, if, you yeah. if you make that one, and you might make the next one, and suddenly you're not through it yourself. So if you believe the decision is the right decision to make, no matter how tough it is, then you just have to be brave enough to do it. Brilliant. Uh, you defeated Partizan Belgrade in 2011 to get to the Euro Europa group stages. Is that when you began to think, what a team I've got here? Well, first of all, with Rovers, we did, you know, we finished, the first season, when I took over Rovers, they finished 42 points behind Bohemian. Pat Fenlon was the manager at Bohemians. They had a really strong team won the league and the next season my first season we finished four points behind and we just missed out we lost the league in the last three games and then our team started to get stronger again the second season we, we won the league um, we got through Juventus beat us in the, in the, in the Europa League as well wow. so we got a bit more experience we started to get experience um, a little bit European experience we'd, we'd beaten an Israeli team we won in Israel to get through and then we came into the Champions League we won the first round of that. Copenhagen beat us. And then we dropped into the playoff for the Europa League to play Partizan. 
and, and we were equipped to deal with it. Like, you know, in all of the European games, you know, even though we'd gone out at times, the aggregate score might have been 2-1 or 3-1. You know, we weren't getting beat 4-0 and 3-0. And, and it, we, we were always able to compete. And um, it was a brilliant night because it was the first time that uh, a club from Ireland, north or south of the border, had got to that stage. Partizan had been a team that had been in the Champions League the previous season. And, and an incredibly hostile place to play. But to win the game... As, as we did and to win it you know in, in extra time and that and, and it was brilliant you know and suddenly then as a coach you know I was I was developing even subconsciously as a coach how do I prepare my team tactically because I, I had the best team in the league you know in, domestically so I didn't overly have to prepare my team tactically I knew if we went and we played well we would we would win mm -hmm. you know more, more often than not because you're win. better players yes uh -huh. whereas now I was going in to play against Partizan Belgrade Juventus you know we played Ruben Kazan we played Tottenham we played Pauk. Uh, so suddenly within the space of about 18 months, I think I'd played something like 14 European ties. And that experience of, of how to set up a team, how to think about a team, I think that possibly was, you know, the one thing that, you know, was in my favour when eventually, you know, the IFA came to speak to me about the international job. Was there other interest in you then or was it only Northern Ireland? No, I thought, listen, I thought at one point I was, I thought I was going to be the next Hibs manager and it didn't happen, you know. I did speak to Hibs and they, they opted to go down a different route. Um, there was talk about Dundee United at, at, at that time as well. I, I thought, from a career point of view, my next step would be to come and manage in uh, the SPL at the time. That was, uh, you know, I still had my house in Edinburgh. Scottish football, I knew. I wanted to come back to it. There was a bit of talk about, you know, League One. Even Preston was mentioned as a possible option as well. Um, and, you know, I, I was out of contract at, Dund at sorry, Shamrock Rovers at the time, um, and I didn't think I would, I would get the national job. There was people who had managed in the Premier League, there was people who had managed in the Championship who were in for that job as well, um, and I was only 42 at the time, so I was young to be an international manager. I think at the time I was the third youngest in Europe, so I, I didn't envisage that I would be the Northern... There was no career plan there, that wasn't part of it. It just happened, and when I went for the interview, you know, they came and offered me the job, and then I thought, well, if I don't take it now, I might never get it. You never know, it might, you may, might never get offered it again. So I took it, and, you know, um, six years later, I'm still in it. What were the objectives at the start when you first took the job? Just to try and win, to be honest. It was like we, I, I didn't possibly realise. Northern Ireland had finished badly in the previous Euro 2012. Campion had finished badly, four straight defeats. And you could tell that there was a lot of... It wasn't a happy camp. It wasn't... It wasn't Due uh, to what? I just think results had been bad. You know, the, you know, you could tell Nigel Worthington was getting disillusioned with the job as well a little bit, and, and uh, it was difficult for him. You know, I didn't realise, I think Northern Ireland in the previous... They'd won something like two of 22 games. I didn't realise it was that bad. Now there was draws in there and, and that as well. So when I came into the job, like, the first object, just make it better. People just want like, can we can we make it better? And we actually did, performance-wise, we did make it better. The only thing was our results had let us down. We played a lot better, but we just we, we were a team that almost had a, a you know, it was like a self-harming complex. We would play well in the game for 70 minutes and lose 1-0, you know, off a deflected goal, or we would, we would be leading 1-0 and then we'd, we'd lose a game 2-1 the last 10 minutes. We, we, we almost became accustomed to, you know, losing games from winning positions, and so that was the very difficult first two years for me. It took me 10 games to, to win. Mm -hmm. um, but in that period, we drew with Portugal away and almost won. You know, we, we drew at home with Luxembourg and Azerbaijan, which were two really bad results that we should have, we should have won comfortably. 
We beat Russia. Capello was the manager. Um, you know, we, we had high points, but we had some low points in there as well. The friendlies were difficult because player availability wasn't strong. But then, you know, there was a lot. That two-year period was, there was a transition in the squad. There was a, a bit of weeding out to be done of certain players. There was a lot of refocusing for players. Say, look, you know, we need to change what we're doing here. And thankfully, as I say, we managed to do that for Euro 2016. So was it mentality that you changed? Biggest thing, yeah. Uh -huh. Biggest thing. Yeah, it wasn't. We didn't have... People always go... Like, if I had been a club manager with the same group of players, I would have changed the players. Because you, you'd have gone, I've given them enough chances, but I didn't have any other players. I, I couldn't do How that. How tough is that? Uh -huh. It's very tough. It's very tough. One of the hardest things people don't know is about an international manager and... You know, I'd speak to Gordon about this when he was in the Scotland job as well, and he even you know, I remember speaking to Craig about it. And like, you're on your own so much. You don't have a staff. You don't go into the club and sit around the table after training and have a cup of tea and talk about things. You you don't have that. Mm -hmm. You know, you, your staff are all working at clubs. Scotland's the same. You know, like you, Gordon's staff are working at clubs, and they're they're focused. They just come in and work with the national team when you're together. But the manager's constantly working. But he's, you're, you're constantly things in your head. You're constantly on your own, and the, the, you're you just have to deal with so much in terms of how do you change it? Like I, I, I how will you change it? How can we make it better? And uh, slowly but surely, you know, we you know we had to go through that campaign where, you know, as I said, like we we we, we sat with the players and, and we went. There's our results at 90 minutes, and we had seven points from 10 games. I said, but there's our results at 70 minutes in the, in the 10 games. I said, we had 16 points. We'd have been third in the group, we finished fifth. I said, so we're not as far away as what people think. Mm -hmm. We've let ourselves down. You know, our discipline was poor, we had suspensions, and we couldn't afford, we couldn't afford to have that. So we, we drilled into everything. We looked at all aspects of it, you know, all the statistics around the games that we played in competitively, and, and just tried to create a message that we could bring to the players that say, listen, we can do better here. And the big thing, I think, for a lot of it was it was the first year for the Euros that the third-place team could qualify or at least get a playoff. Mm -hmm. So we had to show them, even in the previous campaign, that they should have finished third to give them that belief. And, and they took it on board. And, you know, we, instead of... We, you know, we started out trying to finish third and then we ended up, we won our group. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, they, they overachieved in that situation. But to be fair to the squad, they've kept it going. OK, we, we narrowly missed out in the World Cup, but... And then slowly we, we integrated new players into the squad. And players that, you know, we, Josh McGuinness was a player that people thought, well, like, what is Josh? Is he a right back? He was a goalkeeper, goalkeeper. at one point. Is he a striker? <laughs> uh -huh. But Josh grew with us. You know, he grew with us. He's now a championship player at Bolton. Mm -hmm. And he, he's played in a major tournament. He scored an important goal for us. He scored against the world champions. You know, people at the time thought, Josh, Josh McGuinness was a bit of a laughing stock. You know, what's, uh -huh. but look how his career's gone as well. And that's, you know, we, we got players that grew with the squad as well. That was very important. Is it similar to club management where you need to get the main players on side, the older, experienced players on yeah. side quickly? You need that. You need that. And thankfully, I had that. I had that uh, pretty much from the outset. You had to convince, you know, Davis. You know, I brought Aaron Hughes back. He was in retirement. Chris, Chris Baird, Chris Brunt, uh, Johnny Evans. Macaulay. You know, Macaulay. Big players, like Premier League players. like And, you know... Convincing them, like, you know, do you want to look back at your international career and have 70 caps, but not too many highlights? Mm -hmm. You know, we have to create highlights, we have to create memories. And, you know, it was doing that. It was getting them to that point where they, where they, they valued their international career again. It wasn't, it was something that became important to them again. And it's something that's become important to them now. So they all have little targets in there. Johnny Evans is, you know, I want 100 caps. Mm -hmm. 
you know, previously Johnny maybe would have ducked out of a tour or wouldn't have been available. Now, you know, he's there in the summer for us playing in Costa Rica and, and Panama. The, the focus of, 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 the, of the senior players was important because if you don't have that, it's very difficult to drill it into the, to the players that are beneath them. Uh, when was it that you started? Was there a specific moment that you started to think the squad can do something? Yeah, probably when we won the first game in Euros. We, we didn't, people we, we we couldn't play. Everyone always talks about um, the games, and I know it came up a lot when obviously there was a, the Scotland interest in me and they talk about winning percentages and, you know, oh, he didn't win. He only won one in 10 games. And I, I had a period as an international manager where I had to play 10 international games away from home because our stadium was being redeveloped. Right, uh -huh. So we were going and playing away in Turkey, away in Cyprus, away in Chile away in Uruguay, well, you, wow. you're not going to go there and win. Tough you know, you're places, going there, yeah. tough places to go and play against teams that were going to the World Cup or whatever. So, but that was a, it was a huge challenge. And we grew as a team, even though we weren't getting results, we grew, we grew as a team. It affected all those stats, percentages and everything. But, you know, when, when people drilled down closer, you know, I mean, I think like in competitive games, even with the first campaign, you know, I think my win, win percentage is something around about 50 or 60% which is high for a country like Northern Ireland. But when we won that game in Hungary, we played well in Hungary. It shows you the fine margins. Gareth McCauley got injured and we had to take him off in the 70th minute. And they scored in the 72nd minute off a corner. And you think, here we go again. It was following the same pattern. Yeah. We've played well for 70 minutes. And we came back and we won the game 2-1. Uh, Niall McGinn scored the winner. No, sorry, Niall McGinn scored the equaliser and, and uh, set up the winner for, for Kyle. Kyle had set up Niall's goal as well. And we won that game, so that was the start of the campaign. But in the past, so we, our next game was the Faroe Islands, and in the past, Northern Ireland would then come home and draw that game 0-0 or something. Mm -hmm. We came back, we won that game 2-0, and then we went to Greece and we won 2-0 away. So suddenly we would won our first three games, and the mindset of the players, the belief, everything changed, really, in, in those three games. And to be fair, it's been there ever since. How good is the team spirit with that, with that group? I mean, uh, Kyle Lafferty, is he, is he a funny guy? Uh, good. Listen, you need all those types of players. You need them. And like, players come and get disappointed as well. You know, you're, you do disappoint players. They come. Like, I've had lads that have come to the Euros, they've not played. You know, like lads like Will Gregg that came and there was yeah. all this interest. And Will Gregg, the Will Gregg, we never put him on the pitch. So you, you, there's a lot of dealing with players. The man management side of international football is very important. But you, when you have a good group of players, and possibly it's easier for us to do that because we're not consistently changing our squad. Our options aren't as big as certainly as Scotland's or England's or, or um, other countries. So we're not consistently changing our players. There's a consistency to our squad that means their relationships are high and their spirit's extremely high. And you eventually qualify. Mm. How good are feeling is that? Do you feel like the whole country is... Yeah, it was... In debt to you? Well, not... <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, it was incredible, really, because... We played, we had a great start, you know, we had 12 points from five games, four wins, one defeat away in Romania, who were really the, the number one seed in the group, or Greece were the number one seed, sorry, Romania were the number two seed. And then we, we played away, we drew with Romania at home, and then game seven we played away in the Faroe Islands. The game was tight, it was 1-1, and then we, we, we won the game 3-1. And the way the results went, we were coming back to play Hungary and Belfast and we knew a win would, would guarantee us qualification. Uh, and so that was an incredible feeling to think we can qualify here in game eight. And the game was very, very tight. And uh, it was a goal, we lost a bad goal. Michael McGovern, he actually dropped the ball of corner. He was knocked and they scored. Sounds like Michael. Huh? And, and, uh, <laughs> I used to play with Michael, of course. And uh, then we, uh, 
Um, we had a man sent off, so you think it's not going to happen for us tonight. And then 93rd minute, big laugh, sticks his foot out, scores a goal. Niall come off the set piece, come off, Niall strikes, goalie saves, laugh puts it in the net. The whole place erupts. So now it didn't qualify us, but it kept Hungary beneath us. And then we had Greece at home. But that was the first time we had to go into the Greece game. First time with three players suspended. Three, three suspensions. It was the first suspension of the campaign. And uh, on the Saturday, Johnny Evans pulls his hamstring playing for uh, West Brom. And you think, this isn't going to happen for us. So we play Greece. We have to win. And we win the game 3-1. Davis scores twice. Uh, Josh McGinnis scores a header. First international goal. So it was an incredible night. Uh, fabulous, you know, I think the players, they'll certainly never forget that night. What it meant to Northern Ireland, 30 years since they've been at tournament was brilliant. And the great thing was that the squad took that. Listen, it was a night to remember, trust me, there wasn't. And then we got on a plane and we managed to go out and, and draw with Finland. That meant we won the group. So we went from, you know, they still had that motivation. First time ever that Northern Ireland have won the group. And the first time in, in the history of... I think European and possibly in FIFA and European qualification that the team that's in pot five has won the group. Wow. We were the, so they had that, the, those little things were important to the players. Like, so it was magical because that period between um, October and the tournament is the worst part for an international manager. And, and because you have no focus. Like we, I've had it this time because we missed out in the World Cup. So that, that is the worst time. And the difference in the job when you have the finals to look forward to. Mm -hmm. I'm so envious of the international managers that go every tournament. Mm -hmm. Their cycle, because they have that all the time. And, and the other thing is, you talk about the spirit and the group. When you go to a major tournament, you spend four, we spent something like 42 days together, living in each other's pockets for 42 days. And that, that um, is invaluable. So if you're a team and you get that every second year as a tournament, how can you not get better all the time? And, and the, you know, Scotland are missing that at the minute. You know, it's been 20 years. You've not had that, that, that experience. You know, and it would have been great for us to get to Russia as well. But that, that is the, you know, the things that when you look back, when you can get it to that level, then I think the, the, to be successful again is maybe not as difficult. See, nerves as a manager, how different is it when you're, as a nation, that, that's the Greece game I'm talking about, yeah. compared to club management? And that whole nation's... Yeah. It's totally different. The expectation, yeah, people... People don't realise that, you know, that you do carry that. Cause do you get nervous before game? Oh, yeah. Well, not nervous. You, you fear. It's the disappointment if you don't make it. Mm -hmm. it. It was the disappointment, like, you know, constantly in my head, what if we don't make it here? What if we just fall short? What if we just get so close? And the manager carries all of that. He carries it all because even more than, he carries it more than the players. He carries it more. If you, if you go to a cup final as a club and you lose it, everyone's disappointed, right? Everyone, the manager, the players, sports. But when you go to that close to a major tournament and the players, are in, they eventually go back to their clubs. The staff go back. It's the manager that's left there. And, so, and, and that's the difference, I think. And that's the expectation. I remember, like, you know, speaking to Gordon about this, like, and he was obviously feeling, you know, that expectation of, you know, he was desperate for, to break, bring Scotland to a major tournament, you know. And, he, 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 you know, it's that fear of, the disappointment if you, if you just don't get there. But the feeling of doing it is even greater. Oh, the feeling of doing it, yeah. And the games are so tense. International level, the games are so tense. The margins are so fine. You know, you look at it, you, you know, to talk about Scotland, that, you know, you look at, you know, kicking the ball away from beating England 2-1, Hamden, Harry Kane scores equally. The margins in international football are so fine. And often, you know, it's, it's, it's often that special player that makes a difference at international level. And, you know, if you don't have them, then you have to find other ways to win. Just on to the tournament itself, Euro 2016. 
What were the aims going into that? We got, I thought we got the toughest group really. I, probably ourselves and the Republic of Ireland both got the toughest group. We, we came out with Germany, uh, Poland and Ukraine and we knew that this, uh, it was going to be tough. We, we, we didn't, but again we thought, well, you know, what have we got to lose? You know, I remember certain pundits and people in Sky saying, well, Northern Ireland have done amazing to qualify, but like, they'll, they'll not score a goal. They'll just, you know, they're there to enjoy the tournament. And we lost the first game. We didn't play so well, like, but Poland were good. Poland were strong. Lewandowski and uh, Krakowiak were brilliant on the day. But we, we still had to turn the team around and we beat Ukraine. It was a brilliant performance in, in Lyon. And then we had a chance. We had a chance of qualification, but we had to play Germany and Paris. And, but even a defeat gave us a chance because of the way the, the groups, the third place, uh, possibly could qualify. So we had to just make sure the one team you don't want to be playing is Germany because they can beat you five or six mm -hmm. and, and five or six would have killed us. Even three nil possibly would have put us out. So we were one nil down in the game, but we're still trying to get something in the game. So you're trying to change it to give yourself a chance of maybe getting an equaliser because you might need a point, but equally you're trying not to leave yourself open and then suddenly you get beat 3-0 and you've, you've missed out in goal average. So it was very difficult. The last 20 minutes of that game was extremely difficult. But we got beat 1-0. Michael McGovern had the goalkeeper's performance that will live long in the memory. He was absolutely amazing in the game. And um, we, we obviously got the chance then to go to the knockout stages of the tournament. And where, where the biggest disappointment was that because, you know, against Wales, it shows you where we were all sitting together watching the game. Republic of Ireland were playing Italy. And we thought we were going to play France and Lyon. And we were based in Lyon. We wanted that game. Mm -hmm. The players wanted that game as well. And uh, then Ireland scored with five minutes to go. And then suddenly we were going to Paris to play Wales instead. And Ireland were coming to, to, to France to play Lyon. And, uh, but we, we played well against Wales. I think Chris Coleman said that, like, arguably it was their hardest game because they had the expectation. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the, the mental side of the game was different for them. We, we, like, we didn't, Johnny Evans was brilliant, he didn't give Bale a kick, but the one time in the game, we, we, Wales, Wales' success was based around Ramsey and Bale. If you could nullify them, and we did it brilliantly, and one time that Ramsey got free, he released Bale, and he, he puts a great ball in the box, and Gareth McCauley has no option to go for it and turns it in his own net. And that was the only thing between the, the teams, you know. Mm -hmm. And we felt we deserved, we could easily have been in the quarterfinals. You know, we would, it would have been a tough game against Belgium, but, uh, you know, I think we felt there was another game on us and there was very little between ourselves and Wales on the day. Just the last wee bit on the fans. The Northern Ireland fans practically took over that tournament. Yeah. Were, we, were the team aware yeah. how good the fans were? Uh, the supporters have been brilliant. You know, the Northern Ireland fans are... They've, they've lived through... Listen, to me, they're very similar. It's similar to Scotland. I, I come back from... When I always come back to Edinburgh with, after an international, I see all these guys in kilts and coming back from the Scotland trips, you know, and they're there, they're supporting Scotland all over the world. Northern Ireland fans very much the same, you know, they'll go uh, all sorts of distances, all sorts of means of travel to get there. So to give them the chance to go to a major tournament, because if you think about 30 years, there's a whole generation of Northern Ireland fans that had never, that they can't remember 1986 World Cup. Some weren't born or they were extremely young. So anyone I always said under the age of 35, what do they remember about 1986 World Cup? So that, we had a whole generation of fans that this was their first experience of a major tournament and they fully embraced it. Like, you know, they were brilliant how they were in the games. You know, I remember we played Germany after Germany beat us 1-0 and we didn't know if we were in or we were out at that time. 
and the Northern Ireland fans all stayed behind. They were singing and singing. And like the German fans, I remember Thomas Muller and, and Bastian Schweinsteiger were out with their phones like videoing our fans. Oh, really? Yeah, it was wow. brilliant like, to see. They made such an impact in the tournament. And that's why, you know, hopefully, as I say, it's not 30 years before they're back there again. It must have been surreal for you, though, after that game, thinking your first couple of games, I think you has got battered mm -hmm. to where you are now. It must have been a surreal moment. Oh, totally, yeah. Like, it was... Did you think you could get there? Well, when I came in, the first game we played, at my debut, or my first game as international manager was Norway. We beat 3-0 at home. But it was a bit harsh on us. But the second game we played Holland away, and we played with a very, very young team. We beat 6-0. 6-0, uh -huh. And I remember I was sitting with Billy McKinley, who was my assistant at the time. We are looking, playing the Amsterdam Arena. It's the biggest clock in the world on the scoreboard. 6-0. <laughs> it's 30 minutes to go. I'm thinking this could be ten. We Jim was right. They, they were, yeah, they were. Jim was right. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, and they were like they they were coming at us from everywhere, like Robin, Van Persie, Huntelaar. He had the strongest team. I was playing with a team, a really young team. Yeah. A lot of our experienced players weren't available. And I'm like, what have I done? What have I got myself into here? Really, like where? And at that point, I thought, you know, God, at that time, you don't envisage that you'll ever get to, you know. And uh, the day, you know, I remember we went away at Luxembourg and we got beat. After playing really, really well against Portugal, and and uh, we got we got beat in Luxembourg, which was the lowest point. And I thought I'm wasting my time here. Really, we're not going anywhere. I couldn't see it. You know, people were still saying, "Listen, no, forget that, better." And then suddenly, like two years later, you're at a major tournament, and you're playing. You know, the the best thing you you want to go to a tournament, but the games we had were brilliant. Like to play the world champions in Paris and PSG Stadium. Like sixty thousand people there. It's, mm -hmm. it's what that's what the game's about, you know. And those are the you know the memories that we'll take back from it. You had the highlight of your career so far, huh? Yeah, to be in the major tournament, I to be part of it, and and the, just the whole, the whole build up. The real enjoyable bit is the build up. You know the, the the excitement and everyone. You know you have difficult things. You have to leave players out of the squad. You know I had to I had to leave Liam Boyce out of the squad. It was a difficult decision for me. Um, you, you, you know, the manager still has a lot to deal with. Everyone else is having a wheel of a time. Mm -hmm. But as a manager, you're constantly like, we didn't have the staff. I was going back and forward to France, organising training venues, how we would set different things up, the hotel, everything. You know, the Germans have an army of people to do that for the manager. Mm -hmm. we, we don't. Like, so I, I, I was hands-on. It was a bit like being back can at you still again. Can, <laughs> <laughs> can you so still enjoy it? Though? Yeah, you can. You have to. You have to enjoy it. You know, even, even when I, like... The World Cup playoff was extremely stressful, like, you know, when you're going, you know, we lose the home leg to Switzerland in the same place. Look, we have to enjoy this. Think of all the games you've played as international players. Think of all the times you were sitting there playing game six, game seven, nothing to play for. Think of all the times you went back to your club and people would have been like, oh, how'd you get on? We beat 1-0 by Latvia or we drew 0-0 or something. Now you're going back to your club and you've got a chance to go to a major tournament. You've been to a major tournament. Different, you know what I mean? And, and, and enjoy, enjoy the expectation that we've created. You've turned me into a Northern Ireland fan after it's a lovely well, one. I've checked into your bloodline and thankfully there's no, there's no grandparents there. Yeah. Just on the future, since we're mates now, you can tell us a bit about the Scotland job. Did you fancy it at any stage? Okay, yeah, of course there was times where it was attractive. You know, There's no doubt about that. And I'm, I'm close to Scottish football because I've played in it. I live here, I watch it. So, yeah, but you know, I, I just didn't think for me at that time it was the right thing for me. It was difficult to leave Northern Ireland. And, and I do think that, you know, it was important for Scotland that a Scotsman managed them as well. You know, I, I was really disappointed that Gordon just missed out. I'd love to see Gordon get the chance because I know how hard he worked at the job, but it just wasn't to be. And, you know, as I say, hopefully we're not drawn in the same group for, for the Euros when it comes around in December. But, you know, I, I haven't seen 
what Northern Ireland, what qualification has done for Northern Ireland. I know what qualification will do here for Scotland if and when it arrives, you know, and as I say, um, it, and possibly, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the right time for me, but who knows what in the future. Another affiliation with Scotland, you're now a Peterhead fan, aren't you? Peterhead fan, yeah. Well, after, after you would have probably been a player that I would have taken on a trial to break in and then sent to <laughs> Peterhead. Uh. <laughs> so uh, we had, uh, yeah, we had some good battles. I remember, you know, we had good games with Peterhead. And good team. Nice little club up there as well, yeah, isn't it? It's a good, good club. It's a good club. So. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Top Thank man. you. Thank Thanks you. very much. Cheers, Cheers. Thank you. At Leia Healthcare, we always want to give our members more. So now you get unrestricted access to a world of benefits that will help you stay healthy. From convenient video calls with a GP to get prescriptions online, to easy access to experts when you finally want to do something about your ropey knee or dodgy back. And if you do need to see someone urgently, our clinics are available for minor injuries, all without you needing to put your hand in your pocket. Let's stay on top of your health in every way. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Insurance provided by Ellipse Insurance Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare. Leia Healthcare Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare and Leia Life is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Unrestricted benefits are available until the end of December. Fair usage policy applies. Vodafone is now Ireland's largest fibre broadband provider. We've got fibre broadband here in Dublin. Here in Clifton. And now here. We could soon be powering this podcast you're about to listen to. So you can wander on your computer from the comfort of your own sofa. Curiosity is everywhere on Vodafone, Ireland's largest fibre broadband provider. From €30 per month, search Vodafone Gigabit Broadband. Terms apply. Subject to availability and selected areas. Average speeds based on Comrade Market Share Data Q1 2020. New customers only. Subject to 12-month contract. Offer ends 22nd of November 2020. See Vodafone.ie forward slash fixed terms for full terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.